positions. You make me extremely nervous. What is that, a handkerchief? What? Nothing, that's nothing. If it's nothing, know. why can't I see it? Ah! My, my blanket, my blue blanket, give me my blue blanket. I'm sorry. I don't like people touching my blue blanket. It's not important. It's a minor compulsion. I can deal with it if I want to. It's just that I've had it ever since I was a baby, and I find it very comforting. Hello, listening people. Hello. You're listening to Spit and Polish Presents Pictures Power. I'm one of your hosts, Ryan Swinski. And I'm Bartek. Bartek, how are you doing? I'm doing well, I reckon. How are you doing? I am a human too, Bartek. Hence, I speak like that. I'm doing good. Do you like cinema movies and television shows? I have been known to. I especially like those of the Aquaman variety. (laughs) (laughs) He has been on both. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, We are here doing our podcast, Pictures Powwow, the show in which we talk about a movie that's come recommended to you. (laughs) We have, uh, this episode, we have a listening people's choice recommendation. Bartek, Mm -hmm. do you remember who recommended this film? I do. I think he's my uncle. You think or you know? I'm pretty sure he's my uncle. And they recommended... The Producers from 1967, I believe. The OG Producers are Mel Brooks Producers. His first feature film, I do believe, if I'm not mistaken. I think first directed film for sure, yeah. First directed film for sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, So that is the topic of discussion. Bartek, we are spitting Polish. Why is that? Just for the newbies? (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure why. You You don't know? No guesses? I'm gonna guess that uh, the Polish one I know, it's because we are Polish. Oh, okay. Um, the spinning you, one, you, I think... You know that for sure? I think for sure. Okay. You sound and I confident. Think, and I think the spinning refers to the verb, so I guess we do the verb all the time. That or we're very distinguished. Mm. Uh, so that is the that is our legacy. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, until next week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we let's talk about the producers, listening people. If you haven't seen the OG producers, not the Broadway musical, not the uh, remake slash adaptation of that Broadway musical with Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane, if you have not seen the original 1967 producers, do so because we are going to be talking about it. There are lots of differences between this film and those properties, which I will talk about. I, I will talk about. But let's get into it, Bartek. History, relationship, and feelings about this film. Yep, so this film, as recommended by my uncle, is a film that he very much likes. And I remember a couple of years ago, I was chatting with him and I think someone else about movies, and he asked me, hey, have you ever seen The Producers from 1967? And uh, I told him no, but that I'd check it out, and I ended up checking it out and really liking it. Um, but I think he keeps forgetting this fact, because every now and then, whenever we talk about movies, he would ask me, hey, have you seen The Producers? And I'd remind him, yeah, yeah, I saw it because because you recommended it to me. And uh, then last Christmas, uh, 
he asked about it in the podcast form, like, have you done it? And I said, no, but I'll put it on the list for you. Ah, uh, how sweet. Yeah. It sounds like a real uncle. I've never really had any uncles in my life, so that story felt like something like like I've missed out on. I've never had a re- I've never really had an uncle. So mm. that story really warmed my heart. It made me nostalgic for something I've never had. Yes, and the <laughs> Polish word for uncle is Wojek. Wojek? Yeah. Oh, good pronunciation. I I nailed it. I I watched the film. There's some Polish stuff in this film we'll talk about, I'm sure. Mm. Uh, but, uh, so, so, okay, so I didn't realize that you had seen this before, because you like Mel Brooks, but you haven't seen a ton of his things, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I haven't seen all of it. All of it. What have you seen, just to refresh my memory? Um, I've seen Robin Hood Men in Tights, Silent Movie, uh, Young Frankenstein, uh, High Anxiety... Uh, this, I've seen half of To Be or Not To Be, which I think he only produced. No, I, think, and, uh, I thought he directed it, but uh, go on. Yeah, and I think there's... Oh, Spaceballs. Okay. Um, And I think that's it. So you, so, yeah, you have seen and actually and quite a lot of his things. You just haven't seen History of the World Part 1. No, that one I haven't seen. And a lot of the ones that I listed are films that I saw quite a while ago, so they're not entirely fresh in my head. Like whenever not people Blazing talk about... Saddles? Oh, yes, I've seen Blazing Saddles, yeah. Mm, good, good, good. That's the one that matters, according to everyone. Well, I'm like, what about History of the World Part 1? That one's got so much. <laughs> mm, I, I hear a lot about Young Frankenstein, and I have seen it, but it's been so long that I don't remember much about it, so that one I'm keen to check out again. <laughs> oh, it's it's gorgeously great. I have seen this film before. I can't remember when. I've seen it a couple of times. The producers, uh, it's the f- this film, the musical, and the other film. I like it, but I don't love it. It's uh, out of all Mel Brooks's projects, this is probably the one with like a, a really original, interesting idea at the center of it. Because a lot of the other ones, for the most part, are. Uh, riffs on something in pop culture, you know, your Frankenstein, your, your your Star Wars, your Robin Hood, and those are all great, don't get me wrong, but this one has a really unique, interesting idea at the center of it, which is these two guys trying to get away with this scam, and the idea of the scam itself is really uh, interesting and really unique, and and that's kind of the hook of the film, but for me, it is not one I love in any of the adaptations. It's it, like when you think Mel Brooks, you think of a certain type of uh, comedy or movie that this this particular film has some of, but not a lot of. Hence, you could tell it's an early work of his. What mm, do you think yeah. about that? No, I'm pretty much the same way. I enjoy it a lot, um, but. It's not one that I think is, like, the funniest film ever made, which a lot of people label this film as. Um, I think there's a lot of merit to it, and I think it's influenced some of the stuff that I've worked on over the years, but, mm. um, yeah, it's not, not one of my favourites. It's it's very good, though, nonetheless. It mm. has a fantastic cast throughout. It uh, has great comedic physical slapstick set pieces. Like I said, it's that idea, this idea of these producers trying to make a flop on purpose to get more money than if they made an actual successful story. And then obviously 
spoiler alert, they actually do make a success and that costs them. Yep. Wonderful. Wonderful. And I can see why this got adapted into a Broadway musical uh, and then that Broadway musical got made into a movie adaptation. But I see why. And if anything, out of all of his works, this one surprisingly is one of the ones of his that has probably uh, a bigger reach than, say, something like you know, uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights, say, or, or Hiss of the World Part 1, or, you know, even uh, Spaceballs, because it is one of those ones that transcends being just a Mel Brooks movie uh, because of its success as, an, uh, as a musical on stage, where people look at the producers as, like, this high prestigious form of entertainment and art, which... Mel Brooks movies are for sure, but most people think, oh, Mel Brooks is that funny guy who does, like, the parodies, Mm. all the spoofs and stuff. And uh, so it's weird that really the the producers uh, uh, is one of of his uh, long-lasting works, and it's his, you know, first big feature film. So when watching it again last night, Bartek, uh, what was your feelings on this movie? Did it hold up? How did you feel? Uh, yeah, it's, it was interesting. Like, I forgot how, I guess, because one of the main things that you'd remember about this film is when you actually get to see the play that they end up making, and that's meant to be, I think, one of the big comedic points of the film, where Mm. even some reviewers who have criticised it have mentioned that once that part is over with, the film pretty much should have ended. Um, But then you just have to consider that there's a big lead up to that where there are a bunch of you know it's it's the pre-production of the of the play um and it was interesting to see like how long a lot of those scenes went um so in a way like I'm rewatching the film and and the stuff that stuck with me the most which was the springtime for Hitler play was really like a minor minor point of the film in general so it was yeah interesting to see the the details that went into all the other stuff that were in the film yeah 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 i agree it is you know it's near the end it is uh like you said a minor point in the overall film but it is a major point of the film in terms of not just like of the narrative because this is what they're building towards but in the outer world in our world because at the time and even some still today find that a big uh, point of love and a big point of contempt for the movie because there's always that question to be asked is it right to um, make fun have jest have have jokes about such a serious topic which the movie itself talks about by the fact that they've on purposely chosen this offensive material and then at the end people love it because it's a funny take on this offensive material, but there's that question people have debated about Mel Brooks's entire career of, uh, is humour enough to justify, like, is satire and humour enough to justify covering topics like this in this particular manner? Like, are you removing power from the Nazis or Hitler, or are you kind of softening them in in time? And does that, what are the effects of that? And that's kind of like why something like Springtime for Hitler is kind of the big thing of this movie too, because also it's very funny, but also it gets <laughs> you thinking. 
because it's more than just a comedy set piece. You can clearly tell Mel Brooks, the the writer, the director, the man, has clearly put this in to make uh to, to he's put it in deliberately. There's a specific choice here. There's a reasoning here other than it's funny. He is very much making a comment on 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 uh on Hitler, which he's done throughout his entire career. Yeah, yeah. Um and even even beyond that, like reading up about the film, Mel Brooks always like pushes that point of of why he chose to do this. So it's not just something that he did, you know, for the laughs. He he's got a whole philosophy behind, yes, I want to make fun of Hitler to try and take away that power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh I know that we've talked about before on the podcast a uh, philosophy of comedians in uh, film, specifically Trey and Matt from, uh, you know, South Park and all of that when we did Cannibal the Musical. Yeah. And we've talked on air, we've talked off air about how we feel about their kind of comedic philosophy when it comes to touching taboo sensitive subjects because because Mel Brooks has done that throughout his entire career he's he's pushed the he's pushed the envelope he's with stuff like blazing saddles with stuff like this he's 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 touched upon really sensitive issues with comedy but he has like we said he has a whole ideology and comedic standpoint and philosophy behind it while while people like Trey and Matt we've talked about on the pod before Sometimes myself, sometimes you, uh, we struggle with the fact a lot of their philosophy kind of comes across as um, nothing matters, everything's up for grabs. Mm -hmm. While Mel Brooks, that isn't the case. Like, yeah, yes, things are up for grabs, like, let's make fun of Hitler, but you know what isn't up for grabs? Something in, like, Blazing Saddles, he talked about, like... uh, well, we're not gonna we're not gonna lynch the black man because there's no com- like that's the line we don't cross, right? Like this is the kind of thing that we don't do. And with the Hitler stuff in this, it's like there's no way, shape, or form with the ways delivered in this that you can actually look at Hitler as in any kind of intimidating force. He's just a joke. Um, and I find that interesting that, you know, someone like Mel Brooks, who has weirdly enough over the years been used as like a shield for a lot of people who are like, oh, well, it's okay to make fun of anything because look at Mel Brooks. Where it's like, yeah, but Mel Brooks has a point or an ideology or he has like a clear definer of what is and isn't the thing to push. And you can see that in this film, although some of the things are a little dated, like his gay characters are very dated. Mm. they're just there to be gay and that's the joke and they're not even that funny I don't think yeah I think I was reading up that apparently it was like a tame uh, sort of comedic take on gay people for that time so Mm. yeah I think even then it wasn't really trying to push it that much no no it wasn't like offensive it was just like you know like it is that point of the film where you go you know, you know, not the funniest or the best segment of the movie and uh, not the best characters and uh, the mm. comedy that they're deriving isn't that funny in comparison to everything else going on in the film. Yeah, he had a nice beard, though. He did have a nice beard. It was very well quaffed. Mm. Uh, did you... Uh, so let's talk about our lead stars of the film. Uh, we've got Gene and we've got Zero. 
Who mm-hmm. did you? Who do you lean towards? Who's the one that you like, Max or Leo? In this film, I think I think I might be leaning more towards Max. But in general, for the actors, I don't know zero from anything else. Okay, interesting. But you're a big Gene Wilder fan. Yeah, the few the things that I've seen him in, I've always enjoyed him. So what about Max pushes him to like what 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 makes that character that performance really stand out for you because Gene Wilder is doing a lot in this too but what what about He is he Max? is and when I was reading up the trivia about everything Gene Wilder was going through like I was I had a lot more respect for the role too Oh yeah Um but uh, Max he's just this incredibly larger than life character who you can really tell that the actor is just putting his all into it all the facial expressions he does, the reactions he does, it just, it feels very intricate and I find it very funny. He would be the one you would play. I feel that way too, yeah. And I would be Leo. (laughs) (laughs) I'm having, (laughs) I'm hysterical, I'm I'm wet. (laughs) Yeah, I... And he's in pain. I'm in pain. (laughs) God. I lean towards Leo. I'm a big Gene Wilder fan, and I like my Wilder hysterical, shrill, angry, flustered, and defeated. And that's how he is in this movie, and that's how I like him. (laughs) Every time he got to go off, when he had his little blankie rant, that was amazing. I love Gene Wilder. He really should have been an Oscar-winning actor so many times in his career, but obviously not because, you know, not in the way that we want. Like, I'm saying Willy Wonka, but that's for kids, so we're not allowed to give him that. But he was a great presence throughout his career, and in this movie I found him particularly enjoyable and sad. Like, at the very near the end, when they're watching the success of their play that they've put on, and it cuts to them, and they're like got their sad hangdog expressions, and it's just stuck. That 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 shot just lingers on that, and then Gene Wilder like has a tear roll down his face, and like I felt so sad, and it's those big blue eyes of Gene Wilder that just make you feel so sad. He's got such an expressive personality that just emanates off the screen, even in this where he is just playing like the. The, the, you know, the mealy mouth accountant who is nervy, which can be very one note in anyone else's hands. But in this, Gene Wilder just, he hits all the right notes. Mm. That's not to say I didn't enjoy Max either. Max was the type of character I love as well, where he's he's, he's a manipulative, conniving bastard. Or anything that he said, or anything Gene Wilder described him as in that final, in the in the courtroom speech. He's all those things. <laughs> he really is, yeah. I love that he had a comb over. Very prominently, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't subtle, and it was gross looking. I loved it. I thought it was very entertaining. It was nice to see certain character actors turn up in the movie that would later become bigger stars in their own right. Did you notice any in particular? Um, did I? I'm not entirely sure that I did. Well, we got Kenneth Mars. He played our good German writer. 
He uh, he would appear in other Mel Brooks movies. He was in uh, Young Frankenstein as uh, um, the inspector character. I'm forgetting his name off the top of my head. The one Mm. with, like, the fake wooden arm. Now that you mention it, was he he the right-hand man in Spaceballs? No. No. That's another actor. Um, But he was also in Malcolm in the Middle, Kenneth. Kenneth Mars, he played, he, whenever I've seen him, he plays, like, over-the-top German characters, even though he, he wasn't, like, you know, that was just an accent he was putting on, but, uh, in Malcolm in the Middle, he plays, a for those to give context, in Malcolm in the Middle, they have the, the eldest son, Francis, and he has, like, every few seasons, he has, like, character arc moments, so, starts off in the boarding school, goes to Alaska eventually, and then eventually he ends up at a ranch where it's run by these Germans or these, you know, certain European types, but they're very German. And mm-hmm. he plays the German owner of the of the place and he's very over the top and he's wonderful. He's got a big mustache. And I just love seeing Kenneth Mars and things. And uh, in this, you know, he's iconic. He has so many great lines in this. And, you know, he's he he's always wearing the helmet. Yeah, he is. Uh, the drunk Bartek. You didn't recognize the drunk at the bar? The one who I, gave a toast to toast? I didn't recognize him. I did read in the trivia that he he voiced um, the, the professor guy in Night Before Christmas, I think. Yes, but he was the prince, the headmaster in Major Pain, the one covered in moths. Oh, yeah. One yeah. of my favorite character actors, William Hickey. Or in this, he's titled, uh, credited as Bill Hickey, which I was like, is that William Hickey? And then he turned up and I'm like, hey, he's just got dark. He, he doesn't have white hair. He has brown hair, but he still looks old. He's always <laughs> looked old and he's always had that raspy, but airy quality to his voice that is very recognizable he's one of those character actors that i've never seen him in any big roles he's always in little roles in movies and i've always loved that guy when we did our major pain episode i talked about that before but i just loved seeing him in this i forgot he was in this and this is probably the youngest i've ever seen him and he still looks old he still (laughs) looks old he sounds the exact same wonderful wonderful if people want their william hickey fix there's uh the film my blue heaven with rick moranis and uh, steve martin he plays like a former gangster who's now in witness protection wonderful in that and um uh, i'm forgetting the name there's a jack nicholson movie with uh, kathleen turner who's in as well uh pritzy's honor i want to say he's great in that too he he was wonderful i loved his whole segment in this movie i loved his physical comedy that he got to do like he didn't get to do much but he kind of showed that it isn't just our two-put leads that get to enact in physical comedy in this movie. Like, other people got to kind of play around with it too, which was nice. Yeah, that's a good point. And Eva Braun, Bartek, in the Springtime for Hitler, was played by uh, um, Fran Fine's mother in The Nanny, the TV show The Nanny, and you may remember her as the elderly lady at the pharmacy in Tyler Perry's Temptation Confessions of a Marriage Counselor. And we loved her in that movie. She was our favourite character in that movie. Oh, yeah, the one who... She worked there, right? Yeah, yeah, she worked there. And so it was nice to see her. And then also Jerry Seinfeld's dad from Seinfeld 
play was a was one of the Nazis in in Springtime Fate. Like I can't remember if he was he was one of the big ones like Goering or Goebbels or Himmler. He was one of those. Mm-hmm. So a few big hit like a few good character actors just kind of popping up here in the in the early days where we don't really know them by looking at them how they were in this movie. But in a few decades time we'll be like, oh man, that's Jerry's dad. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um. So, uh, was there any particular comedic moment in this film, other than the springtime for Hitler moment, that really hit for you? I think I really enjoyed all of LSD's scenes. Yeah, okay. What about LSD worked for you? For one thing, I completely forgot about him from my first viewing, so when he just came in with that like accent of his... And his whole musical number, that just, like, really got me giggling a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So you're a fan of LSD. See, for me, I'm not a fan of LSD. One of the few (laughs) things that the um, transition from Broadway and then later to the other movie really did well for me was that character was kind of, I think, omitted and changed around. Um or stuff because in the I've I've listened to the musical I haven't watched the musical but I've seen the uh, movie adaptation and in that the story goes in my memories it's been a while uh, the writer wants to be in the musical as Hitler but right. he breaks his leg at the last moment and they replace him with the director's gay boyfriend character that you have in this movie you know the the you know the guy we talked about with the beard. Uh, uh-huh. They replace Hitler with him, and the joke is that he's gay. Like they, they Hitler. The, what makes the musical a success is how he plays it as a uh, flamboyant gay Hitler. You have the iconic image in the movie and on the stage where Hitler gets introduced, and he and he uh, stands like he's doing he's doing the Zig Heil and profile, but then he lets his wrist go limp, and mm-hmm. uh, then he starts singing "I Heil Myself." Uh, and that is one of the few things that I like more so about those adaptations of this than this. For me, LSD, he was the most dated quality of the movie. The idea of what if Hitler was played by a beatnik kind of guy. And it was very dating of the movie for me. It kind of made me go, oh yeah, this is really a 60s, 60s movie well, the rest of it is kind of like, you know, yeah, there's aesthetic things, but for the most part, its sensibilities are kind of timeless, except for LSD. Even the joke about his name is very of its time. Mm. But I'm glad you liked him. Uh, what, what particular Did he have a particular kind of line or moment that really cemented him as a, a, a comedic fave? Um... I remember when you, when you first see him on stage and like he's at the piano and just his interactions with Eva Braun where <laughs> it feels like it almost feels like he didn't rehearse yeah. and and I guess I guess there's also the part where the audience started turning uh you know towards springtime for Hitler um just the <laughs> I guess the the bad acting really sold me on him, and even later on when he was talking to Goebbels and they were just like, not even trying, just mumbling to each other, doing these weird movements, it just really tickled me. Um, 
and even his song like again i'd completely forgotten about the song so and and there was a lot of energy to that song that i thought was very weird very interesting yeah yeah i really enjoyed one of my favorite uh comedy moments other than uh the drunk scene that was a real highlight for me maybe because i'm a william hickey fan and i didn't fully remember he was in this but because i enjoyed that whole moment when you know then the audience comes in and they find out that their plays a success and they're horrified and all that stuff was great and you know a toast to toast and stuff I really enjoyed when they went to go visit um what what was the German writer's name again? Uh Lieberkind, I think. When they go go to visit him and they have to talk to the concierge uh that woman who's like I'm the concierge. Yeah. I love that. I don't know why I wanted her to be in the movie more if ever again and I missed her. I liked that, her. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing was, like, just expanding with too much information that doesn't matter, but, like, they're kind of obligated to hear her out or else she won't let them in. Yeah, my husband was the concierge and then he died, and now I'm the concierge. <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah, that, I thank you, yeah, ma'am. I'm not a ma'am, like. I'm a concierge. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know why, I just like that back and forth. It felt very Mel Brooksy to me, and like the bits of the movie that really work for me are the very Mel Brooks parts. Like I loved the opener of the movie, where it just kept going and going and going, and it felt like they were never going to leave that that room. Yeah, yeah, that was a really long scene. Loved it though. Loved it. I even loved his uh, landlord. He was great. Like, he was in one scene, but the guy who, like, took the check right out of his hands and and uh, they took the Lord's... Like, I can't remember, like, they, you know, Max said something to God or whatever to strike him down or whatever, and then, like, he looked up and, like, responded, like, no, no, God, or whatever. <laughs> he was like, strike <laughs> down the man great. that would take a... Yeah, strike down the man that would take a man's last penny or something. <laughs> and yeah, and then the guy's like pleading to God himself, like, please, no, 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 no. But I like even that guy was funny, and he was just in that one moment. That yeah. whole opener was was wonderful, and I was like bummed that we left the set. Even I was like, okay, we're never gonna leave this room. Like I've seen the movie before, but I was like, oh, so we're not gonna really leave this room, huh? And then we did, and it was still good. But that that whole opener sequence was was really fun. You had all yeah, it, of it. You had the blankie. You've had like I'm, you know, I'm hysterical and everything. It was wonderful stuff. Yeah, it it had a real theater vibe to it. Like the one set, it's like we're sitting in the audience watching it. I really yeah. enjoyed that. Yeah, it was it was uh, wonderful stuff. Was there anything about the film that didn't work for you? Um, I do remember that that scene that we were just talking about did go on for a little long, but again, there were just so many great things to it that that it worked for me. Um, I, I guess people keep talking about how this is one of the, the greatest comedies ever made, and I felt like it was a bit... Mm, a bit scaled back for that. Like, yeah, the, the, the big laugh-out-loud mm. moments were spread out throughout the film. I feel like most of the great comedies kind of have it more often in the film but that's not Especially really Brooks a, ones. yeah yeah it's not really too big of a problem but 
Yeah, I guess I was expecting a bit more because I do remember. I've already said it in this episode already that I remember all of the big moments, and then watching it again, it was just seeing how all the little moments played out. Yeah, I agree. I think it's just because it has a surprisingly, um, surprisingly large legacy. Like I said, because this Broadway musical is very popular, and then people go back, and also it's the it's the starter of Mel Brooks. And that in itself kind of gives it a pedigree in its own right, because, hey, this is where he kind of started and look where he went. That's kind of uh, fascinating in itself. And like I said, I think the idea itself, the, the, the genesis idea of these guys doing this particular scam is really, really unique and very funny. Just that idea, you, you could do so much with that as a comedic idea. And they do. They go for it 110%. Yeah, I really like that angle of, like, it's about the creation of a product rather than a product. I I, I loved when, um, also, Mel Brooks movies, I think, often, when, when people don't give him enough credit for, uh, a lot of his movies, they're gags upon gags upon gags, and you can kind of mask issues with that because, uh, you have so many jokes on top of each other that if there's a dud... You move on, There's, it's like we're not lingering on it, we're moving on. But one of the things I wish there was more credit given to is most of his films, if not all of them, uh, more so than not, have a heart. And this film has mm-hmm. a heart. Like, you feel genuinely sad for them, but also you don't because they are scamming, selfish assholes. But Yeah, that's a really interesting aspect of it. Like, you get the scenes with, like, at the park and... Gene Wilder's talking about how liberated he feels that he doesn't have to be working at that moment. And, yeah, you feel for him, but it's also, like, yeah, you're you're going down a path that's going to send you to prison. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you're scamming old ladies, and you're, you're, you're you know, you're... But the film knows when to, like we said, Mel Brooks knows when to when to draw the line in the sand and say, "Hey, that's too far." Like, like whether it's Mel Brooks the man or even the characters, like when Max suggests that uh, he go buy bullets and shoot the actors and murder them, Gene Wilder's like mortified. He's like, "You mm. can't do that." The, the the actors are not animals; they're human beings. Which that line reminded me of the iconic line from elephant man you know i'm not an animal i'm a human being and you know who i thought it was huh i was gonna say i thought it was from police squad oh yeah from police squad but you know who produced elephant man mel brooks yeah i think i remember reading that like a couple of months ago and that was surprising yeah no yeah yeah. mel brooks has produced a few interesting works that you go mel brooks yeah yeah (laughs) like (laughs) he turned up in this Jeff, like, the fucking David Cronenberg, The Fly? What? <laughs> like, he's got a weird back catalogue of work that is... It's weird to think he, he's only made 11 films. Yeah, it feels like more. And before, I just listed, like, six that I saw. And yeah, that means I've seen most of them, I guess. Crazy, right? Him yeah. and Stanley Kubrick are basically at the same level. <laughs> yeah. I guess another thing, you mentioning him appearing in things, this is also one of the ones where he hasn't physically appeared in the film itself. But his voice is here. Yeah, the join the Nazi party line. Don't be stupid, be a smarty, come on and join the Nazi party. He's used that line several times. It's a great line. (laughs) Yeah, I like the little trivia point that mentioned that every time it pops up, it's his voice. Oh yeah. Yeah, he he always has to say it. 
I but I I love that the film has a heart. One of my favorite moments and all of his films usually have some kind of emotional core to the center of them and one of the moments I really liked was when they're going to set off the dynamite and Gene Wilder takes the time to come over and say, hey, you know that moment ago when I called you uh, fat, 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 fat? Sorry about that. And and they just have like a tender moment before they <laughs> obviously go to prison and stuff, before they get tried in court. And even Gene Wilder's monologue in court starts out like it's a snide, backhanded way of trying to get himself out but then by the end of it it's actually like this loving endearing monologue about max and how much he likes max and how much he feels liberated and so do these old ladies and and all this stuff wonderful just just pure joyous because i think a lot of people think of mel brooks stuff as you know he's pushing the envelope when it comes to 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 certain types of things that are considered to be taboo to do you know blazing saddles obviously comes to mind mm. but uh he always has a endearing quality that's underneath all of the the mean jokes or the silly gags or the farts or hey i'm a jew kind of exterior underneath all that there is a love there for something whether it's the characters or 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 the subject matter itself which i miss in modern comedy by the way don't you don't you miss that yeah, it's interesting. We've we've done quite a number of older comedy and even older films on the show so far, and yeah, it the the differences in sensibilities are very much highlighted. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the adaptation for the musical and the subsequent movie, the the uh, female character, uh, what was her name? The secretary was it? Uh, Ula. Ula. She becomes more prominent. Um, which is obviously, uh, you know, stepping forward into the more modern times, I guess, because really there aren't really any female characters and she's kind of the only one we really get and she's there just to be a sex object. But yeah. she's very funny. <laughs> I lost it. I forgot that when um, Kenneth Mars comes in to shoot them and kill them or, or whatever, before that, she's out there dancing and doing her thing. You have the director come in and say verbatim the things that he was reading on the cards. And when he kicks him out, they open up the door and you hear the music and she's still dancing out there. Because <laughs> she hasn't been told to stop. Also, it's not dancing, it's working. Oh yeah, sorry, working. How dare I? <laughs> and I... <laughs> you know, I love it. I just love that silliness there. But, you know, in the... In the, you know, musical and the movie afterwards, they've adapted her character, made her more prominent or given her more to do. But one of the things I've never gotten about that remake movie, uh, or the, the Matthew Broderick, Nathan Lane one, is they got Uma Thurman to play that role of, like, the, the sexy blonde bombshell. And Uma Thurman's an attractive woman, don't get me wrong, but it was always, like, a weird casting choice that they got her to play this role with the accent and everything. Hmm. It's always been one of those Uma Thurman? Like, she does a great job in the movie from my recollection, but I've always been like, Uma Thurman though? Okay. Sure. I guess. Hmm. I mean, not Heather Graham? Alright. <laughs> yeah. Heather Graham would have been good. Yeah. Right? Am I wrong? I'm, I'm, I'm a crazy? <laughs> Who knows? Crazy for Heather. 
But uh, yeah, the producers was a fun um, rewatching trip. It's it. I definitely did appreciate it more on this on this watch. Um, it's also been a while since I've watched any other Mel Brooks movies. I think if you're marathoning Mel Brooks stuff, give the produ- put the producers on early and then the rest because it is very different to the rest of his stuff. Hmm. Um. Anything else you want to discuss about the producers? Um, I, I guess I, I brought up earlier that some people's criticism of it is that the ending kind of drags a little bit. Like, obviously, the the monologue at the courtroom is a very nice, poignant, uh, heartful moment. Um, but do you think after the Spring of Time for Hitler thing, the film dragged a bit for you? No. No, if anything, it dragged before that. Um. Mm. I thought it was smooth sailing, really. I think maybe there's that thing of it's known for springtime for Hitler. And then you're watching the movie and you're like, oh, God, it's taken a while to get to springtime for Hitler. And then springtime for Hitler comes near in the third act. And you're thinking, oh, well, this will be the end of the movie. But then, no, they're going to have to face consequences to their actions. And I felt that the pacing of that was done well. I thought that they... Um, had some good jokes, but also, like we said, good moments of heart. Like that shot just of them looking depressed and crying and all of that at their successful play. Um, mm. And the monologue and them just continuing on in prison. I, I didn't drag for me. Um, I didn't think about it. it. It just glides through. And for me, I'm just like, yeah, from a script perspective, from a nar- narrative perspective, from a film perspective, it has to go like this. They have to face their consequence, the consequences. They have to have these emotional beats. And for me, it all worked. I didn't have any issues with how it went after Springtime for Hitler. But I can see why people do, because that's the big set piece everyone remembers this for. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um, do you want to talk about the springtime for Hitler stuff? Does it still work for you? Still make you laugh? Still put a smile? No, yeah. I mean, yeah, it worked for me quite a lot. Again, I liked LSD, so the LSD stuff was great, but even the musical number that it opened with was pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. I love the part at the end where, like, the, the pillars went down, there were cannons, and then the, the, the uh, Nazi banner swastikas just came up a bit jankily. Oh, uh, you didn't like that one woman was pretzels and one woman was beer? Uh, th- those were the best women. <laughs> they were the ladies, as they were credited. Mm. I loved Springtime for Hitler. It's a great musical number for a start. And mm. then you just have the audacity of it, because it was an audacious move back then. He had every Jew uh, write into him saying, how dare you? <laughs> and he wrote back to everyone. Oh, yeah, every rabbi. Yeah, every <laughs> rabbi and pretty much every Jewish person, like just like, how dare you? He wrote back to all of them and told them, hey, Hitler needs to be taken down a peg with comedy. (laughs) What a, like, and it is an astonishing thing when you do see it because the commentary, like, the way that the musical is done is is commenting so much on that Nazi iconography that has, you know, still lasted. The the strength of that Nazi iconography and propaganda has still maintained, or even to, to till today. But something like Mel Brooks's interpretation of it with, you know, them doing the swastika formation, which was a thing that was done, and, uh, you know, lots of the iconography, like I mentioned, 
when he does it, he's there's no ifs and or buts of how it is silly, and you can't um, take any glorification from it like you can when uh, a serious drama uses Nazi imagery, uh, like when American History X. The whole film is about you know how bad being a Nazi is and all that, but you know who loves that movie? Neo Nazis, because they love the imagery, but neo Nazis have never used springtime for Hitler <laughs> because there's no way you can look at it from a visual standpoint, from what the words are saying, even the music itself. There's no way you can look at it and say like, oh, it's glorifying or it's, 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 it's wonderfully, um, it's wonderfully tuned in. And, you know, it's kind of that great thing of the springtime for Hitler thing did what very few people could do back then in the 60s, but also back in the time when the Nazi propaganda was out, which was critique how flimsy and silly Nazi propaganda and imagery is, <laughs> because a lot of it's very silly. Yeah, I really enjoyed, I, th- I can't remember if it was on IMDb, but there was a thing I was reading somewhere online about the film that talked about how um, even back during World War II, um, there was a sort of minor scale self-awareness in Germany that there is a lot of things about Hitler that is absurd and could be played for comedy and they had to specifically like not acknowledge that at all and just focus on like the ideology going on. Yeah, but even that too. But then there's also the things that were part of the German psyche of that point. You know, like they have like the blonde hair, blue eyes, beer, pretzels the marching mm. and the fact that they do the schwastika with humans and it's so mm. dumb and silly when you actually critique it and think about it i like also that um not just lsd but even all the people that were auditioning to be hitler none of them like really resembled him at all there was always like something wrong with them like oh, the hair's yeah. wrong or the mustache is wrong that was always very silly or they're fat, or they're they're small, or they're woman. Or they have silly voices. Yeah, yeah. Oh god, it was wonderful stuff. Uh, Mel Brooks, you know, as we record this episode, is still with us, and what a joy that is. If you have not Bartek, there's a wonderful uh, Conan O'Brien interview with him that's like an hour and a half long. That's on YouTube. Oh, wow. It's called like Jibber Jabber. And that is just an amazing thing because Mel Brooks still has all this energy. Whenever you see him out and about in real world, he's just got so much crazy manic energy. And he's like 90, what, four or five or something? I don't know how old he is. He's got to be, yeah. He's in his 90s and he's still like doing shit. I remember earlier this year he was trending and people were worried about him being dead. But it was no, it was him and his, uh, I want to say his son or maybe grandson were doing like quarantine gags. Amazing. <laughs> He's still out there do, making fun of Hitler still, Bartek. He still does his gag where he um, grabs a comb out of his pocket and like holds his hand over it, a portion of it and puts the rest of it on his upper lip to look like Hitler's moustache. Yeah. Yeah, again, I haven't seen the full thing, but I've seen roughly half of To Be or Not To Be, and even that has like naughty Nazis, which I always remember was really funny. And that is a remake of a 1940s comedy film, To Be or Not To Be, which I mind doing on the podcast one day that film's really good like the original to be or not to be is really good mm. uh i love in the mel brooks one just I, I think i've watched it like four times this morning just the opening three minutes where they sing in polish like i just love that sequence 
Because uh, we should talk about that. Like, um, Max's last name. You want to talk about that? Yeah, it's, yeah. so his, his last name in the film is Bialystok. Mm. Um, it's a Polish city, Białystok, which Białe means white. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a Polish city. And um, but did you read more about the trivia of, of what that Polish city was big for back in the day? Oh, I did read it, but it slipped my mind. It was the big Jewish um, city in Poland at the, before the war. And oh, right, the big yeah, yeah. Polish pop, uh, like the big uh, Jewish populace in Europe at the time. And Mel Brooks's uh, family were at one point, you know, Polish Jews. Yeah, Isn't I think. I interesting. Think it, I think I read that his father was Polish Jew, yeah, and his mother, I think, was. Ukrainian, or, mm. or the place that she's from is now Ukraine. I can't remember the details, but yeah, it's nice to know that we've got a nice Polish man. Yeah, and in Hollywood, here's how absurd the the um the producers is. Think about this, Bartek. Mm-hmm. Uh you have these uh these two characters who are Jews in the in the in the movie. So you got the Jewish lens, and they are adapting. A Nazi piece for a Gentile audience. Isn't that absurd in itself? Yeah, and they never really acknowledge it, do they? No, but it's there. Like, you know, the characters yeah. are Jewish. They they do mention that and they do show that. And then, yeah, they're adapting this Nazi piece for your Gentile audience. Isn't that just <laughs> fucking absurd and wonderful? It really is. Yeah, I didn't consider that. This, you see, I can see my people do hold it in such a high scene because it does, in comparison to some other Mel Brooks movies where they are praised because of just, he's a good filmmaker for a start, but, uh, and good writer, but they're mainly praised for those great gags. Like, I love History of the World Part 1 because you get a musical number about the Spanish Inquisition, but does it have all these nuances that this particular film is giving us where we are having this discussion about it? Not necessarily. Uh, a few of his films, like I think Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles, and this one are probably his most thought-provoking films, in, and the rest of them are really good gag movies. Like, I love Spaceballs, but it's not like it's giving you a great commentary of uh, Star Wars other than merchandising exists. That's probably the deepest mm. thing it gives you. Merchandising. Merchandising. Oh look! I remember really liking the Silent Movie. Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, I just said I, I remember really liking Silent Movie. Silent Movie is a good throwback. I love that. Uh, so that's it, Bartek. I think we've talked about yeah. the producers enough. Um, have you checked out the the musical or the other movie before we end this? No, I I don't know anything about it other than what you told me. So I'm I'm, I'm interested in the thing you said about how they have gay Hitler rather than hippie Hitler. That sounds that sounds interesting. Yeah, and he gets to have a whole song within the springtime for Hitler. Like, he gets to join in and add more to the springtime for Hitler number where he gets to sing about how he hiles himself. And <laughs> it's... So, do you think, in general, that 2005 version is worth checking out? Um, for a newbie, like, you've seen the original producers... Uh, I know musical fans would say it would be great if you could watch the uh, taping of the musical. Uh, I have. I've enjoyed that. But uh, 
you know, it's really up to you. Uh, the movie has that problem. The two thousand, uh, I want to say two thousand five. The biggest issue is it's too faithful of an adaptation of the stage play, where it kind of doesn't utilize the medium of film as much. So there's a lost in translation stuff there, but. You know, I didn't hate it. I know some people like it, but for you, I, I reckon you would enjoy just watching that movie. Will Ferrell plays the um, German in it. Okay. Uh, but, you know, if you can listen to the musical or watch any clips of it, it's pretty great. Um, Mun Short, at one p- point, played the uh, Leo Bloom role. He was really good. But Matthew Broderick's great in the musical, like in the stage musical. He's in the movie. He's okay, but... You know, in the stage musical, he's far better. He's he's a really good stage actor, Matthew Broderick, surprisingly. Whenever I've seen some hmm. clips of him on stage stuff, he's actually really good. Oh, I'll have to keep that in mind. Uh, so, Bartek, it's your recommendation for next episode. Tell us what you're going to hit yeah. us with. Uh, I want us to to go back to our roots of... Uh, checking out a family movie from from the 2000s. I feel like we've done a lot of serious stuff lately, so we should we should dial it back mm-hmm. and talk about something that you know we, we've done a couple of dark films lately. Maybe one that has more blue skies. So I want to go for the 2002 film Ice Age. Okay, Ice Age. What brought this on? <laughs> No one's thinking about ex- fucking Ice Age. <laughs> I'm very curious what brought it on. I just explained. Yeah, yeah, I get, yeah, but, but <laughs> I know you just explained. <laughs> I know you're doing it because you want to hear Solid Snake, Kiefer Sutherland himself, as as uh, as uh, uh, what was he? He's the saber tooth saber. Yeah, that he's a saber tooth, wasn't it? Oh fuck! Is that Dennis Leary? Shit, you may be right. I thought Kiefer Sutherland was in Ice Age at one point. Maybe he's the bad Sabretooth. We'll find out next week. Maybe. So, listening yeah. people, next See, episode, this is why we have to check it out. Find out if Keith Sutherland is somehow <laughs> involved in Ice Age or if Ryan's crazy. We'll find out. Maybe Amanda Bynes is secretly in the movie and Ryan's forgotten. <laughs> Who knows? Fuck me. I've seen most of her filmography, apparently. <laughs> oh. Do nice to have a female character? Um, not in the main cast. Yeah, not in the first one, no. Not, not in the main cast. They don't get Queen Latifah till the second one. Hmm. Uh, well, Bartex, Ice Age. We'll see how the animation holds up, huh? <laughs> yeah. And it's it got your favourite, Ray Romano. As everyone knows, Bartek yeah. loves Everybody Loves Raymond. He's seen every episode, back to forth, back and forth. I am, I am some everybody. Uh, Bartek, a pleasure as always. As always. A pleasure as always. always. Uh, Pleasure times three. uh, Listening people, you can find us on all the podcatchers. Rate, review us on whichever one allows it. We greatly appreciate it. You can email us with your suggestions for movies we can cover. It's not just Bartek's uncle. You can too at spitandpolished at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on the social medias of Facebook and Twitter. We have uh, lots of fun posts on there, further comments, some links to things that we've discussed on the pod or things that we think could just be interesting, some funny stuff on there. And you can interact with us on there as well. Uh, We... uh, don't forget to check out our monthly show uh, that we released earlier on in the week. 
Bartek kind of hinted before. We talked about police squad. Uh, the, it was a subtle hint. A subtle hint. Uh, police Squad, which was uh, the prelude, the preamble, the show before the Naked Gun movies. So Frank Drebin is at it again, but before the Naked Gun movies. Uh, he's at it first. He's at it first. Uh, so until next time, listening people, remember to hile yourself and also if you're gonna if you're gonna do a scam you know you gotta convince your scamming partner like i did bartek i scammed him into doing this podcast by Mm -hmm. taking him on romantic dates around the city (laughs) yeah ryan ryan let me ride him ride me raw baby i was dressed but sure